I can literally put $500 a day into Facebook ads and generate one and a half, two K a day. I had to learn how to run Facebook ads. And obviously the course gave me like the basic info, but it'll teach you the fundamentals, but you just gotta do it. I actually had like 10 minutes left before my train was leaving from Houston. And I was like, I need to take this opportunity. I was just very persistent over the following six to nine months after that. And obviously I, I jumped on the opportunity. Another skill that you think has really helped you become the person that you are. I think for someone my age is probably- Welcome to the Young Leader Podcast. We'll be showcasing the very best business owners and thought leaders within the YP Club. We'll be delving deep into strategies on how to scale your business, the things they don't tell you about their industries, and the struggles of scaling a business right here in the Middle East. Hey guys, so we're back this week with another Young Leaders podcast. Last week we had Radin, this week we have Tom. We are doing the Young Leaders podcast to really give our members an opportunity to come down and sit and really explain their business. What we've realized within the DYP community, we've got some really amazing business owners. Tom's story is really interesting. Tom is 20 years old, has come out to Dubai, is already running a very successful agency. We'll get into it in a little bit, but one of his main clients is Steve Bartlett. As we all know, Steve Bartlett runs one of the most successful uh, podcasts. He's now on Dragon's Den. And I think what Tom has done at his age at 20 to come out and really come to Dubai and run with this and didn't go to university, we'll get into that as well, and just grow a business almost single-handedly, I think. Um, but yeah, Tom... Pleasure to have you, mate. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure to be here. It's um, it's kind of uh, weird doing one of these podcasts when you you see loads. There's like so much podcast stuff floating around now. What really inspires me about your story is that you're just 20 years old. You seem to have things. When I spoke to you last time, you you know you think differently, right? Mm. Where did you first really realize that you kind of had that entrepreneurial mindset? Because some people think they have it but you've kind of proven you've got it right in different, different Yeah, ways. I guess it, it all started, to be honest, when I was kind of, must have been like 15, 16 years old. Um, I've, I've kind of, I've not really come from, oh, I guess I have come from an entrepreneurial kind of family. Like my dad's, he's got his own business. Um, he sells a product worldwide and has done for the last 20 years. So it's always kind of been, you know, mm. um, not ingrained into me, but I've kind of seen that, you know, growing up and, seeing what he's done, you know, going to different factories and all that kind of stuff. And it's always intrigued me. So it was kind of when I was 15, 16 that I was like, <clears throat> you know, I kind of, um, I, well, I, I literally, I just got myself on this platform called Fiverr, um, which is I'm yeah. sure a lot of people will know what that is, freelancing platform. Um, and, uh, and back then I was like, what can I offer? Uh, and this is the main, main kind of crux of, of how anyone can really set up a business is, um, or become, you know, an entrepreneur as such is how can I provide value to a marketplace and get paid for it, right? Um, and I was kind of, at the time, obviously when you're 14, 15, 16, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not really the way 14, 15, 16 year olds think, but I was like, I didn't obviously think like that at the time, but I was like, how can I provide something to someone to get paid for it? So I got myself on Fiverr, um, and initially I started writing um, travel articles for, um, Firstly, it was high net worth individuals. And then after that, it was, um, or kind of like combined with that, it was, you know, hotels and uh, essentially people who wanted travel articles written um, for, you know, either their business or like I say, personal high net worth, high net worth individuals. So I started doing that. Um, I completely undervalued my services as you do when you're a 15 year old. Mm -hmm. um, I was, you know, writing thousand word articles for you know 30 40 dollars and that's before fiverr take 20 percent and paypal take their fee and whoever else take their takes their fee um so yeah i was you know completely undervalued but it gave me a sense of earning money for providing value to someone um and that's that's all you know ever kind of has, has been my thing is i've done loads of you know other stuff since then but now what i do as an agency it's obviously in a much 
sort of larger scale and a much bigger level, but it's it's providing value to a business that gives them a direct, you know, return in some way. Um, yeah, it makes sense. So so when you're <laughs> what what kind of drove you though from 14, you have to have something on your mind. And a lot of people always liken a legacy, like to leave a legacy behind. And yeah. I know Homozi sometimes says uh, having a legacy is, is, is stupid. Yeah. Um, but I think something has to, in the back of your mind, even if it's a chip on your shoulder, if it's you want to prove to your dad you're as good as him at running a business, what was the kind of yeah. dynamic that drove you from a young age? Um, I've never, I've always thought about this. And, you know, you always hear these stories of people who are like, oh, you know, I came from absolutely nothing. Mm. And, and that wasn't the case, right? You know, I had a really good upbringing by my parents. You know, I lived um, in a household where, you know, it wasn't like, you know, my parents couldn't provide for me. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't that case. I guess it was just a case of, I guess a lot of it was because I wasn't such a social person. It's almost like I, this is the route that I'm taking and I want to prove to these people, this is the reason, you know, why I'm not in town with, you know, my friends in uh, lunchtime or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So once I kind of gone down that route and also it was a sense of, I guess, earning money and being able to spend that money, you know, wherever you like. So when you're 15, 16 years old, you know, mm -hmm. you don't have, most people don't have a job. And, you know, I was earning at the time, maybe like $1,000 a month, you know, something like that. And at that age, like having that money and, and being able to sort of multiply that and having like freedom to be able to earn, you know, to whatever extent you want to earn um, at that level. I think that's kind of that initial sense of like, where I can literally make money like from the internet, like from Fiverr. Um, like I was on family holidays writing freaking travel articles for people, right? <laughs> um, and then, you There's know- There's no I, chat GBT uh, then either. Yeah, just the, exactly. Just, <laughs> just the hacker. It was just me, yeah, like yeah. slaving away at the laptop at 10 o'clock at night. Um, so copywriting is kind of where you started then with all these different articles. Yeah, it was copywriting. It was, obviously I'd never been to these places before. So, you know, it was researching. It, it was a lot of researching, like researching, you know, what these places were. Like I remember doing this, like these really weird um, travel articles. They weren't huge, but it was for places in Myanmar, um, which okay. uh, is used to be called Burma. Um, and it was, yeah, it was some random places and like the most obscure places that you, you would like, I couldn't literally, some places I couldn't find any information on the internet. Obviously I would go on the internet and, you know, like find um, information about places and then kind of, you know, like repurpose that into kind of a travel article. Um, and yeah, I had to do a lot of digging for some of these places and uh, some places were, were really random. But yeah, I guess it was, it was researching, it was copywriting. Um, and I guess that's always helped me as well is, is kind of, you know, having to formulate like good English at that age isn't impossible, but, you know, it's not kind of what a lot of people do. You know, you're mm -hmm. used to write, writing, you know, essays about Shakespeare's books and stuff like that, right? Yeah, when yeah. you're at school. Um, so writing that sort of stuff was, you know, I guess it, it helped me academically maybe, um, but also it just kind of, you know, um, I guess it made me a, a very mature because I had to communicate mm -hmm. with people who, you know, they didn't know I was 15, 16 writing travel articles for them, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, trying to communicate with those people and, you know, having that kind of like business sense and negotiating prices and all that kind of stuff, that's kind of what gave me that kind of drive um, yeah. at that age. Interesting. I was just trying to think, like, how did you evolve then from copywriting, the research stuff on Fiverr? And I think a lot of people that watch this podcast, a lot of business owners, when they're starting out, tend to use services of Fiverr, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think Upwork is now kind of pushing that kind of quality level. I really yeah. like what they're doing. How did that evolve then from $1,000 a month doing copywriting on locations you've never really heard of, which are very obscure? Mm -hmm. How did that evolve into the next stage? What was the next stage that came after Fiverr? And what point did you think, I've got to park this and move to something else? Yeah, so I mean, I was, I kind of, not quickly, but relatively quickly realized that um, I was very much undervaluing, you know, what I was doing um, and how long it was taking me. You know, I would literally, again, sit in lunch breaks, like writing travel articles because I had a deadline to hit on Fiverr um, whilst I was also, you know, had an essay to hand in to my teachers the next day as well. Um, so 
yeah, I guess I, I kind of quickly realized that I was undervaluing kind of, you know, my time and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was taking me a long time and, and all this kind of stuff. And then I got into, um, I was kind of researching other ways to make money online and all this kind of stuff. You know, the typical Google search that people do is, you know, how to make money online and all these different things are coming up. You know, there was Amazon FBA, there was like, you know, reselling stuff. There was, um, uh, drop shipping. There was, you know, loads of different stuff that was coming up. Um, so I was like, you know, what else can I try, um, to, to essentially, you know, do the same as what I'm doing at the moment, which is making money online, but something that's not going to take so much of my time um, mm. to, you know, write a thousand word article and stuff like that. Um, so I'm trying to think back to sort of when it was, but I'm pretty sure that after that point, um, I also kind of was researching or had seen that, you know, people were reselling stuff on eBay and Amazon. And I'd always done like really small stuff. Like when I was a kid, I used to resell, um, Olympic 50 P's on, <laughs> on eBay. <clears throat> I sort of set that up, identified products that I could see were doing well on, uh, on Amazon and eBay, like, you know, sales volume wise and stuff like that. Um, and my best seller, which is super, super weird. And I still don't understand to this day why people wanted so much of this stuff, um, was Arm & Hammer baking soda. So it's a US like products, like Arm mm. & Hammer is a US brand. Yeah. Um, but baking soda, yeah, just seemed to be like, you know, I was selling like 50, 60 units of this stuff a day um, on Amazon and eBay. Wow. Um, on Amazon, obviously, because I was sending it in and it was being fulfilled by Amazon. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, I didn't have to do any of the fulfillment there. But for the eBay stuff, I would literally have to come back from college, um, get all of the like packing materials out, like poly bags and uh, bubble wrap and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Spend like a good like hour and a half two hours like having to print all the labels off mm. um package all of the stuff up and then i would do like maybe three or four trips to my local hermes i think it's called every now parcel shop um on an, an electric scooter that i bought um and whether it be raining whether it be dark whether it be cold like literally every single day straight after straight after school um before i complete kind of you know any homework or anything like that i would package all this stuff up um mm take it to the local parcel shop. Obviously the guy knew me in there because I was in there every day. <laughs> so I'd literally like scan all the things myself, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, all the barcodes myself. And then, uh, yeah, like I say, I had to do like three or four trips because I literally had an electric scooter and a backpack. So mm -hmm. obviously not 50, 60 parcels would, would uh, or poly bags, should I say, would fit in, in one rucksack. So I had to do multiple trips most days. And uh, I guess that that element or that period taught me a lot of discipline and like again mm. i wasn't making a huge amount of money like you know i would sell a couple of boxes of baking soda for like maybe six seven pounds something like that and make 15 20 percent after i'd taken into fact you know yeah. count all the fees and all that kind of stuff so but it taught me discipline because um you, it was every day right you know if i missed a day then i would get customers contacting me saying you know where's my stuff and all this kind of stuff so i had to do it every day whether like i had time or whether i liked it or not um so yeah, I guess in that case, it kind of taught me that discipline of like, mm. you know, if if something's there and, you know, you're making money, then you've got to do the work to, you know, fulfill that um, and for it to be, you know, um, worthwhile and, you know, valuable. Um, anyway, so fast forward, I kind of, uh, that, that kept going until COVID hit, which was at the start of 2020. Um, and then when COVID hit, Obviously, I couldn't, there was literally like no stock of this stuff. Like baking soda was like off the shelves mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because they just couldn't import it from America because obviously everything closed down right at the start of 2020. Um, so I kind of basically just sold the kind of excess stock that I did. Um, I actually wish I'd kept it because about three or four months later, like the price of baking soda and all this stuff that came over from the US like went right up because like no one could get it. And people obviously still wanted it. So um, I probably could have made a lot more money keeping quite a bit of the stock, but, um, classic entrepreneur, always yeah. looking back, what could <laughs> yeah, I have exactly. done better? <laughs> um, so yeah. So then like I said, COVID hit, um, I kind of sold all the stock I had. Um, there was, I ended up with like, uh, have you ever heard of Twizzlers? 
Yeah, I have. I have. Only because of movies, I'm pretty sure, that keep yeah. getting re referenced in certain movies, American movies. Yeah, yeah. So Twizzlers, I ended up with like 16 boxes of these Twizzlers, mm. like huge boxes. I think it was like 150 Twizzlers, like individually wrapped in each of these. I just couldn't sell them. I don't know why. People just didn't want them. So I sold everything other than these Twizzlers. I don't know why I remember that, but I had like 16 boxes of Twizzlers just like in my parents' garage. <laughs> That's um, so niche. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh and i think i had to chuck them in the end because they went out of date but anyways yeah so i uh, i then i think i got approached on instagram by this guy who um was now i know what it is cold outreach was doing cold outreach at the time uh and he was like oh have you you know have you ever heard of drop shipping mm. i was like no not really like i told him that you know i've done all this stuff with like amazon fba and ebay and whatnot um and he was basically selling like a course to I mean, dropshipping wasn't new back then, but it wasn't like it is now where it's like really mainstream. Um, so he basically sold me on this dropshipping course and I was like, I use, you know, some of the profits that I made from uh, from this, uh, when I was, you know, selling this stuff on Amazon, uh, eBay, um, to invest into this, uh, into this dropshipping course. I had no clue what dropshipping was. He basically sold me within... Um, 24 hours like i think the course was like a thousand dollars or something like that maybe mm -hmm. a little bit more um i actually remember i was still in in school because i remember literally paying this guy whilst i was just about to go into another lesson i was like i fucking hope this works <laughs> <laughs> um so uh yeah so i i bought this course and uh it was actually then like shortly after that i bought the course like basically everything went remote um in terms of learning so i was at home i had like a lot more time because you know when you're on a zoom sort of meeting you don't have to pay as much attention as you do when you're actually in class um so yeah i was basically trying to learn all about this you know drop shipping model and how it worked and all this kind of stuff um i then sort of just to sort of like speed things forward i then kind of set up a few stores like i think one store was just like dog water bottle that like literally did nothing um it completely failed like you know i run maybe 500 dollars worth of ads to this store and looking back it was an absolutely shit store um but i'd learned like how to build a shopify store from this course and this kind of stuff um so yeah i, I kind of went through loads and loads of different products um and eventually i landed on a product that actually worked and you know i sort of managed to eventually scale to to doing kind of like one to uh, one 2k a day in revenue um and it was these like knockoff earbuds um they weren't like airpods but essentially they were bluetooth uh earbuds mm -hmm. but they had like a little screen on the case so you could they're see the ones them. that's like the bluetooth device is connected yeah exactly <laughs> that's you <laughs> it's a weird like foreign yeah. voice this yeah, is yeah, like yeah, bluetooth yeah, yeah. Like, connected. wait what <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, they were, to be fair, they were like, the sound quality wasn't too bad out of them, but. You would say that though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're still selling them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were shit. <laughs> um, yeah, so I I scaled that, sco uh, that store and with this drop shipping, like basically this is, and this is the position that I'm in kind of now um, with the agency, but I had to learn how to run Facebook ads um, because that's how you got traffic from Facebook or social media. So as it's called now, but it wasn't back then meta, but Facebook and Instagram over to um, the store. So the Shopify store that, or the multiple mm. Shopify stores that I created. Um, so, so yeah, I essentially had to learn, obviously the course gave me like the basic info, but as I've learned now with Facebook ads, like you, you can't really learn the skill from a course. Like it'll teach you the fundamentals, yeah. but you've just got to do it. Um, and I burned through so much cash, like just like basically learning why stuff wasn't working or at least trying to learn why stuff wasn't working um but anyway i got this i got this store and uh, it was doing really really well really really well um and i got really interested in the facebook ads side of things because i was like wow like i can literally put like you know 500 dollars a day into facebook ads or whatever it was um at the time and generate like you know one and a half two k a day out of it mm -hmm. from the store and i was like wow this is really powerful like if other businesses utilize this then you know you this is like infinitely scalable i do think sometimes with facebook ads it's overlooked as a business right mm. and a lot of people think how can i scale my business mm. i'm not getting enough leads i'm not getting enough customers and even for us we've been in that situation where you've had a lot of momentum 
and you've had a lot of activity inside the business, but you've not really managed to maintain the momentum. Mm. And I think Pete Watson was the first one that really put it into my mind around Facebook ads. Mm -hmm. There's so much to learn about it. Um, and it's really interesting that you've moved into a business that does that. So are you exclusively now just doing ads? How did, because the, the transition from that is now the agency, right? You, have you closed the dropshipping exactly. business so I, at that point? Yeah, so I, I closed, well, I hadn't closed it, I'd sold it. I mean, there was a bunch of other stuff I did in between. Like this guy approached me and said, um, do you want, because there was this thing called Exchange Marketplace, which is where you sell Shopify stores. So I listed it on there and then I got this like message from this guy, I think he was based in like Serbia or something. Um, and he was like, oh, do you want to use this listing to essentially um, basically get leads in of people who might want to buy the Shopify store? Obviously, if they're looking to buy a Shopify store, dropshipping store, that you know they're probably into that sort of stuff. So then what I did for a while was I set up a, like another company called, I think it's called like Perfect Ecom Stores or something like that. Um, and we would essentially just utilize all the leads that are coming in of people who are wanting to buy this store and saying to them, oh, sorry, the store's sold, even though it hadn't sold, but we can build you a brand new Shopify store um, and, you know, basically get everything up and running for you. Mm. So uh, I kind of like set up like a kind of mini business in between um, yeah. all of that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so essentially, yeah, eventually I closed that down Um sold the i sold the store in the end to someone um for i can't even remember it was like it was like eight ten k something like that um so it was like a good chunk of cash mm -hmm. um and it was still you know pumping through numbers and uh for the most part anyway and then i started helping people and sort of local businesses and i actually went back on fiverr and got myself on fiverr again okay um to offer facebook ad services um at that point back in when whenever it was like the end of 2020, I probably wasn't that qualified to be helping people with Facebook ads, but um, I guess everyone's, you know, got to start somewhere. And I had like, the difference was is I hadn't just done a course and I, you know, was offering Facebook ads from doing a course. I'd actually literally like spent a good, like few, probably tens of thousands of dollars on ads myself. And obviously, you know, a lot of it had been sort of not necessarily profitable. Um, so I'd learned firsthand with my own capital. Um, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And then, like I say, sort of started helping businesses on Fiverr. And then it kind of like was grown and catapulted from there really over the last kind of year or two. Facebook ads is something that I'm genuinely curious about because I've realized the power of it. I don't know if enough people talk about it. What are kind of the, some really good things that you would advise them to do in the beginning? Yeah, I think the first thing is, is just get into the mindset of like setting I think a lot of people from working with, you know, over what, hundreds and hundreds of businesses with, you know, through Facebook ads is that a lot of businesses don't start because they're too emotional with the spend that they're going to put behind ads. Um, and I always try and frame it in the way of one, don't be emotional with the spend, like set up a budget for your ads and then spend that, right? Don't think, oh, you know, I want to spend a thousand dollars is a round number on ads then spend a hundred dollars. You haven't got any sales or leads and then stop there. That's just what so many Facebook advertisers do. And it's just too, a lot of the time it's too early to tell whether something's actually going to work or not, or whether you've got it set up correctly, or, you know, there's so many different factors that are involved. So I think my number one piece of advice would be set a budget, whether that be, you know, you don't have to spend a lot on, on Facebook ads to start. Like you can spend $500 if you wanted to, $300, you know, mm -hmm. uh, right up to, $10,000, but set a budget and run with that budget. And then once you've spent that budget, then reevaluate whether it's actually yeah. worked or not, um, as opposed to kind of, you know, looking at it day by day. That's the other thing is with Facebook ads, it's, it's never consistent on a day by day basis. So, you know, we run campaigns where, you know, we might get 50 leads one day and like, you know, 20, 20 leads, 10 leads even the next day, right? Because Facebook is constantly testing, even if you don't tweak anything on the campaigns itself, Meta or Facebook, whatever you want to call it, um, is constantly testing different audience pools based on, you know, what you've got sort of set up within the mm -hmm. ad account. So one audience pool that it's testing one day might respond completely differently and not as well necessarily as another audience pool that it's going to test the next day within, you know, your overall audience that you've given Meta, like the direction to target. Um, and so many advertisers, when they're emotional with their ad spend, they're like, 
you know, three days in, they might get 10 leads the first day, five leads the next day, and then two leads the next day. And by day three, they've spent, let's say, you know, $300 and they're like, oh, this isn't work anymore. Let me just switch this off. What they don't realize is because of the inconsistencies on that fourth day, they might get 15 leads, right? Um, but because they haven't been like consistent mm -hmm. with their spend or they haven't given it enough time, um, essentially, you know, you've, you've kind of like wasted that money because it hasn't properly optimized. Well, you haven't fully wasted the money because you might've got leads, but even if you don't get leads or sales, right, and you run Facebook ads, it's still exposure for your brand um, because you're guaranteed to get people to see the, um, to see, you know, your brand. That's your what's brand. amazing about technology <laughs> now. And I think back to when my granddad would have started a business and you really want to make people aware, I have this business and these mm. are the services that I sell. This is the product that I sell. You would have to probably go out and, you know, really just communicate with everyone in the community. Like this is my business. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But now you just dump thousands into Facebook ads and so many people are exposed to exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. But I completely resonate with what you're saying. And maybe you could liken it almost to the stock market, right? Because mm -hmm. novices that start with uh, investing, they might see Apple as a good product, uh, a good equity, and start investing money and start monitoring that day by day. Do you think there's, in your mind, is it kind of like a preferred strategy for timing? Do you think that you need to at least run a week, at least 10 days or at least a month? Is there something kind of, is there something that you've seen that works really well in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I would, again, depending on your budget, like, you know, if you're gonna spend $1,000 a day or, you know, something stupid like that to start with, um, I wouldn't recommend going that high to start with because you're probably going to have a lot of inefficiencies within your campaign and you're going to waste a lot more, like even if you're testing stuff. Um, I would I would recommend if you're going to run a Facebook ad to run it or a campaign to run it for at least seven days. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of, you know, a good point to be able to get like a full week's worth of data and then evaluate that and then, you know, do any kind of like necessary uh, adjustments from the you know the testing and the results that you've got but seven days tends to be a good chance to allow the algorithm to like properly optimize and also then you can if things are going well leave it to run for another week right and compare that one week to the other never compare facebook ads results day by day because they're just going to be too inconsistent especially over a really short period of time for you to properly get any learnings out of out of the sort of the data that you're seeing um but instead compare like week by week um, so, you know, if you're going to run ads for, let's say, a two-week period, for example, compare, like, that first week to that second week and don't compare, like, days within the weeks because there'll just be too many inconsistencies for you to say, for you to get any, you know, like I say, valuable insights or, like, proper learnings from that. Um, sense. What are them? There's going to be people that listen that are complete novices, right? Mm -hmm. What are kind of, like, the key metrics that you're looking at? Because I spoke to a couple of people and, they, you know, they don't think you should look purely on return on ad spend you should yeah. be looking at other stuff as well is there anything else if you're running a campaign that you're really looking at in terms of those metrics because there's so many that you yeah. can get so many different yeah, things yeah there's so many metrics on on facebook ads and i think that's where a lot of business owners they kind of like shy away from running facebook ads because they're like i don't know what cpm means i don't know what you know cpc means i don't know what um you know all these other metrics that you can that you can look at on facebook and analyze um I think the most important thing, and I, this is where I probably see the, the biggest mistake when I sort of go into Facebook ad accounts and audit them and stuff like that, um, is that people optimize for the wrong thing on Facebook. And it's so important on Facebook uh, and Meta ads to optimize for the correct performance goal um, or the correct conversion. Essentially, you're, you're yeah. telling Facebook where you want your conversion to happen. So... As an example, and this is where I see a lot of Facebook advertisers sort of um, not fail, but you know, sort of do something that's that's not really what they're supposed to do is they're optimized for traffic as opposed to optimize for a lead or a sale or a conversion. And essentially what you're telling the algorithm there is you're saying, as long as you get me traffic, then I don't care like what these people do once they visit my website or visit my landing page or visit, you know, wherever you're sending them. Um, so Facebook is going to optimize for the people who are most likely to click, but actually not fill out a lead form or, you know, purchase a product or purchase a service or whatever it may be that you want them to do. They will only click on the ad and, and Meta's algorithm is super, super clever at working out like who is most likely to click on an ad and who is most likely to click on an ad and then perform a specific action. Mm. So you always want to optimize for a conversion, whether that be a lead or a sale, um, it's you know, Meta have made it pretty obvious, you know, from the 
campaign is called the ODAX menu um, when you first create a campaign, which is optimized, um, uh, optimized driven ad objectives or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it stands for, but that ODAX menu is super important that you select the, the right um, conversion, like location. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that would be probably the most important thing to select. But metrics wise, like you really want to be looking at your core met. And this that's why I sort of explained that first, because if you're optimizing for conversions, like your number one metrics is always going to be that you want to be looking at is always going to be your cost per result, right? You know, whether that be your cost per lead, your cost per sale, um, but your cost per result is always going to be the most important thing. So you want to optimize your ads based on that cost per result. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and Camp, uh, an ad set or an ad that has a lower cost per result, you know, whether that be a lower cost per lead or a lower cost per purchase, obviously you want to be optimizing and allocating more spend to. Um, but then if you've not got necessarily those leads or the set or sales that have come through, you almost kind of work backwards from there. So like you were saying, you can look at stuff like click through rate to see if you've got to understand your funnel, right? So if you're optimizing for, let's say, you know, sales or leads, if you've run a, you know, a Facebook ad campaign for seven days and you haven't got any leads, You've got to work out where the bottleneck is within the funnel. It could be in the ad creative. So like you say, you know, if your click through rate is super low, your cost per click is super high. Um, it could be that, you know, you're not encouraging enough people to, um, to to click on your ad, or it could be that you're targeting the wrong audience, right? Um, or it could be that, you know, you're targeting the right audience, you know, you're getting a load of people to click, but when they arrive on your website, because there's no clear like action of what to do, um, or, you know, where the lead form is, or where you know they can purchase the products or they get confused on the website if that's a bottleneck then it needs to be a change on the website as opposed to meta ads and that's again where a lot of facebook advertisers fail as they or business owners when they run meta ads fail is that they look at the the sort of results and they base everything based on like the facebook ads metrics right so they look and they think oh you know um there's a load of people clicking, you know, my click through rate is really good. My CPC is my cost per click is really low. Um, but you know, no one's purchasing. So it may, it must be that, you know, Facebook is targeting completely the wrong audience. That could be the, the issue, but it's probably more likely than not, um, an issue with the, the funnel or the website. So people aren't actually, they're not sort of, um, they, they, like I say, they get confused when they get to the website, you know, it's not clear. It's mm-hmm. not, um, uh, it's not sort of um, a, a clean flow of, you know, from Facebook ad to whatever your conversion you know, location or, or optimization goal is. Um, so you can look at, you know, stuff like click through rate and, and stuff like that. You can also create custom metrics on, on Facebook. And two that we really like to look at as an agency to analyze creative performance is thumb stop ratio, um, which is how scroll stopping a, a creative is and your hold rate as well, which is how long essentially, or how many people, what percentage of people, what percentage of the impressions that see your ad go through 15 seconds of a video ad. So thumb stop ratio and hold rate only apply to video based ads because you can only calculate it based on those. But if you do want to calculate it, then thumb stop ratio is three second video views divided by impressions. And like I say, that gives you a percentage of people who are watching past three seconds. So essentially they've stopped the scroll and you know, you've got them hooked into the video. And then hold rate is um, through plays, which is 15 second video plays or people who, who watch more than 15 seconds of the video, or if it's less than 15 second video than the whole video divided by impressions again. Um, and those two metrics are really good for analyzing your creative performance and how mm. well essentially people or how well, you know, people are interacting with your creative, not necessarily clicking because it doesn't really give you any kind of like sort of click based metrics. You want to be looking at, you know, click through rate and cost per click for that. But more so from a creative point of view, it's really helpful to understand like, okay, right, is it an issue that we're getting people to stop the scroll, but people just aren't engaged throughout the video and they keep scrolling, you know, after three seconds? Or is it that we need to get more people to stop the scroll um, to then, you know, watch more? That's interesting. I didn't know about those two metrics because for me, I'm just looking at those two purely. Mm. Um, I'll definitely introduce that into... Because you can go and select which ones you want, right? And exactly, yeah. In. So you've got to create the custom metrics. So you've got to create the calculation um, mm-hmm. on Facebook um, when you create your, or when you add sort of certain uh, columns um, into your kind of ad metrics and what you're looking at. Uh, you've got to create it as a, a custom metric. Um, okay. But yeah, two really, really important metrics that not half enough Facebook advertisers that I see use or look at um they just look at like the standard ones that one of the things that really worked well for us when we were doing the uh, i think it was during september we ran a campaign and said uh memberships closing on the first of october 
I just took one picture, put it on just story format, and just put membership closing in like a few days. This is the price, and it will increase using Homozi's urgency tactics mm -hmm. and scarcity, like both of them. Mm -hmm. And that was just like a crazy month for us because mm -hmm. we had uh, 125 members and then 500 on the waiting list. But what surprised me was that was such a basic creative. You know, you can spend days and really go and think about, okay, I want a carousel. I want to tell this story in my carousel. I want a picture, I want a video. I want to go and shoot down in Dubai. I want to get this influencer part of it. And then spend hours and hours thinking about what that headline might be. And when you've got the carousel, obviously you've got the small tag in the bottom as well. And you mm -hmm. want to make that like very punchy. There's a lot of things that go into a carousel, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that they don't work. Obviously they work really well. But what surprised me was that story performed incredibly well for us. Mm. Just, just one post. Yeah. And what's weird is that Dubai is just such a small market that people come to me now and like they joke about how many times they saw that. I really <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd be like, um, because we ran an aggressive campaign or several aggressive campaigns at, at the same audience. Mm -hmm. So the audience that we thought was best for us and we really wanted to, I, to make it, and to make it like a fair test, we thought if we select the same audience, I made sure it was about 100,000 people and ran a number of different campaigns, we can understand the format and the wording that resonates best with them, right? So like you said, it's always trial and error with Facebook ads. Yeah. I spent a week going through a load of different courses. I was just like, I need to get started. I physically, I'm, I can't remember what I've learned because yeah. it's just so much. And the problem is, is because there's so many different strategies that do work on Meta, like if you're going to consume five different courses, they'll probably tell you five different things and then you'll, it will make you more confused as to what to do. Right. So that's why with Meta ads is really about just doing it and then taking the, 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 like the hard sort of data that you get from that, that Facebook ad and from the tests that you do, mm. as opposed to like, Oh, you know, this specific X, Y, Z strategy, you know, works the best because there are so many different things that work on, on Meta. Um, and work, you know, through meta ads that there's not just one single strategy that works. What's interesting though, is that you say, and this is a, another thing that I see <clears throat> so many advertisers fail at is that they, they try and make their, their content so high prod in the way that, you know, essentially it looks like something that you see on like a TV ad, right? That's like really polished, really like high production content. Um, when, when you think about it, people are on social media like specifically instagram and facebook to look at stuff that their family and friends and you know stuff like stuff like that and what they're doing um so if you can try and fit in with that content as much as possible and this is why ugc content user generated content has performed so well recently in, in recent times for e-commerce brands because it's content where people are seeing a face people are seeing a person so it fits so much more into their feed um, and they're a lot more likely to stop the scroll because I'm not sure about you, but you know, when you're going through your feed, you're like, oh, that's another ad, like keep scrolling yeah. to, you know, the, the next thing that's going to interest you, next viral video or, you know, next thing that, you know, you see a friend who's, you know, been on holiday in Greece or whatever. Um, so when you're seeing ads that look like ads, automatically, psychologically, you're going to scroll past them. So if you can try and make your ads look less like ads which sounds kind of like the wrong thing to do but mm. make your ads look less like ads but still get the messaging across those are the ads that perform the best because it's not content that people don't want to look at it's content that people want to look at so if you can make your ads as as good as as possible in the way that it's content that people actually want to consume then facebook and, and meta will also reward you for that because they'll see that people are engaging with the ad mm. <clears throat> And they'll reward you for that with lower cost metrics, right? So mainly your CPM, your CPM, which is your cost per thousand impressions. And it's the main determiner of how expensive Facebook ads are. Um, it will it will be automatically lower if your content is more engaging. And the, the data points show that um, all accounts that we that we manage in terms of testing, like testing is the is the number one thing that we do. Okay. Um, the the main the main thing around meta ads is that it's controlled variables. Like you can control a specific test. It's very scientific when you get into like the, the nooks and crannies of it, but um, you can control a test. So if you want to test, you know, five different audiences against each other, then you can test five different audiences against each other and get 
hard data to say, okay, right, this audience clearly performs better or these two audiences clearly perform better than the other three. Um, But yeah, I mean, going on to sort of like thumbnail tests and stuff like that, um, we we test so much stuff for the Diary of a CEO podcast, which I assume. So yeah, I mean, we we test so much stuff for, you know, the Diary of a CEO podcast, whether that be, you know, thumbnails, whether that be... um, stuff that will inform like the conversation um that steve has with the guests before they've even had the conversation um right through to you know also pushing the trailer as well which is less of a test and more so kind of you know to to sort of um spark people to watch the the podcast um but yeah there's so much testing that goes you know into into the the podcast and what they do like you know for example thumbnail tests for an episode they might test 100 different thumbnails against each other um and the granular difference between each of those thumbnails is the facial expression on the person right um so they might test like you know out of those hundreds there might be 35 um that uh you know different kind of have different like titles on them that you know different topics or whatnot um and then those each there'll be like three sets of those 35 and those three sets will be the person the guest that, that is on that episode but with a very very slightly sort of different facial expression um and that's how granular they go with the testing you can get a thumbnail um obviously you know the something as granular as sort of the facial expression on someone isn't going to make as big a difference as you know the the title on the thumbnail Mm. um but for example the title on the thumbnail you could have one title that outperforms another one by 200 percent um so that's how much of a difference the sort of the, the the data can be um between those thumbnails which is why they test so many because they can then see you know which one performs the best from a click-through rate perspective and stuff like that and therefore you know use that on the uh on the episode itself i wanted to take it just one step before we go into kind of deeper into dario ceo the story that you were telling me about kind of the the persistence that you showed to i think nail down steve as a client right it was some you were working alongside somebody uh, just to go into that a yeah little bit. so i i went to a networking event um at the back end of 2022 um down in london um mm. it was just something that i saw on i'd followed the now the marketing director grace andrews um at, at dara of a ceo i followed her on, on instagram because she's got sort of a personal brand herself and does a lot of like social media based um content and you know updates and stuff like that so I'd followed her for um, quite some time and she just put on a story that, you know, I'm I'm at this live podcast, not the Diary of a CEO podcast, a completely different podcast. I'm doing this live podcast down in London. It's like a breakfast breakfast networking event. Um, so I was like, oh, I'll get a ticket, you know, I'll see what it's see what it's like. Um, so I went down there, um, watched the podcast that was being recorded. Um, and then afterwards it was kind of like, you know, networking, all that kind of stuff. So um, I actually had like, 10 minutes left or 15 minutes before my train was leaving from Houston. And I was like, I need to take this opportunity to, you know, just at least introduce myself to to Grace because obviously I knew, you know, she was linked to the Diary of CEO and all this kind of stuff. Um, so anyway, I made the introduction and kind of explained what I did from, you know, paid social perspective. And she was like, oh, we're actually, you know, looking at the moment to, uh, or we're sort of, you know, trying to get the team to learn about paid and all this kind of stuff. So um, I kind of left, it was very brief. It was like, five, 10 minute conversation. Um, and we kind of like exchanged, uh, LinkedIn details and Instagram details, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then from there on in, um, she actually said, I actually asked her, I was like, um, Oh, you know, would it be possible to come down to the Diary of CEO, um, offices for half a day, a day, just to kind of like see how you guys work. Cause I'm really like super interested in kind of what you guys do and all this kind of stuff. And she was like, yeah, of course, that's, that's absolutely fine. You know, I, we don't, I don't usually, I get so many requests for that kind of stuff, but considering that, you know, there's some synergy here between like what you do and how you could potentially help the team, um, more than happy to, you know, try and organize something. Anyway, given how busy obviously she is with what she does and not really uh, having much time in, in the day to answer emails and all this kind of stuff, um, I was just very persistent over like the following six to nine months after that. Um, just emailing her, you know, periodically saying, oh, you know, we'd still love to organize, you know, a day potentially. Like this wasn't anything to do with, you know, like actually doing the the sort of the paid stuff for them. Um, it was more so just like going down for a day and basically seeing, you know, the the office, you know, how everything works, meeting some of the team, I guess, and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
And uh, it was kind of every like two or three months, I would get a response from her saying, um, oh, you know, we can, uh, let's let's arrange this date, you know, we're free this time. And then I think one day, one time, it was like a week before and I was meant to be going down. And then she was like, oh, we're gonna have to rain check this one because we've got, Steve's got a big, um, big guest that's coming in on the day that you're meant to be coming. So that then had to be canceled. And then I think they went and uh, the team were out in LA at one point. So um, the next time I was meant to be going in, um, I think we had to rain check that one. I can't remember exactly what happened, but in the end um, it was about six to nine months after of like constant kind of like back and forth communication um, that she kind of just reached out to me and she was like, um, Steve's launching his new book. Um, mm -hmm. at the end of August. Um, and uh, we're having kind of like an internal change in roles. So the person who was doing kind of most of the paid stuff was moving to a different role. And she was like, so we've got, you know, essentially we need someone to help us with with paid. And, you know, considering we've had this conversation going for so long and obviously she'd been following me on Instagram and, you know, had seen kind of, you know, what I'd been doing for, you know, other clients of ours and stuff like that. She was like, you know, do you want the opportunity to to help us from a pay perspective to, um, to essentially, you know, help launch uh, Steve's book, which, like I say, came out at the end of August. Um, so obviously, I, I jumped on the opportunity, um, which I'm, you know, super grateful for. And uh, and then it's kind of evolved since then of us doing. Initially, it was just his book launch that we were doing um, throughout kind of the end of end of July um, and all of August. Um, and then after that, it kind of evolved into you know a lot of other stuff that they're doing now um, relating to e-commerce products that they're launching and as i mentioned you know thumbnail testing for the episodes and all the other tests that they do um so yeah it was uh it was a long persistent battle and <laughs> it got was uh, yeah i got there in the end what do you think is maybe one of the biggest challenges with agencies and are you seeing it being more saturated and difficult to really stand out in that market yeah i think the main problem over the last i would say year or so is that because of people like Iman Gadzi, like glorifying um, the agency model, which, you know, it is one of the easiest business models for a young entrepreneur or, or young person generally to get into because it's, you don't have to invest in stock. You don't have to invest in pretty much anything, right? You know, you can run an agency by yourself and quite easily get to 10K a month, 20K a month, you know, revenue just by, doing, uh, you know, outreach and cold outreach and stuff like that. I think the main problem with agencies now is that business owners generally have got so used to, you know, 15, 16 year olds literally having nothing to lose and promising stupid stuff like, you know, 10X for us and, you know, X, Y, Z or your money back and we'll also give you, you know, 5K for wasting your time and stuff like that. I think those kind of like, um, I think those those kind of promises have made business owners kind of like think that's the norm, like, oh, you know, 10 extra hours, like that's what I should be expecting for my you know, business. If I spend, you know, 50K a month in ads, then I'm going to get 500K a month out of it when it's just unrealistic. So I think because that's kind of the only way that these 15, 16-year-olds, which like I say, have, they've got nothing to lose, you know, it's their first business, it's their first sense of, you know, earning money online, all this kind of stuff. They watched... Iman Gadsi and probably a few other people on YouTube and kind of, you know, seen that it's relatively easy to sort of break into with the barrier to entry. Um, and they've been told, you know, to make your offer as good as possible, you know, as an agency. And that's where they've come up with these, you know, ludicrous offers of, you know, 10X for us or your money back and we'll also give you 5K or whatever. Um, so I feel like, yeah, that's really the main barrier at the moment to just the agency mm. space generally is having those like crazy guarantees that and also what it means is that because they can never fulfill on them when you then talk to business owners they're like oh i've been burnt by the trust issues yeah, exactly yeah, yeah the, the, there's there's a trust issue there because you know they've they've been burnt by two or three agencies probably one man bands who are like i say 15 16 17 years old mm. um who have you know promised the world and just delivered nothing um one because they don't have the skill set and the knowledge um, and two, you know, they're just making, they're just looking to make a quick bit of cash and then exit. Um, because like I say, you know, you can quite easily scale up to 10, 20 K a month. And, you know, for a 15, 16 year old, even doing that for three, four months, you know, they can rack up a good bit of cash. This is one of the things that really focused me 
during my time and still consulting, which I left three months ago, mm-hmm. is that you sometimes overcomplicate how it is to run a business. There are a lot of complexities depending mm-hmm. what business model you want to go for. But there are people out there earning 10 lifetimes of salary doing nothing, right? Literally, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's crazy how easy it is, especially with the amount of free information and value that there is now. Um, okay, you know, YouTube is is a little bit of a, a minefield sometimes because like I say, you know, you get told one thing by one YouTuber creator and then another thing by another YouTuber or creator. So it can be a little bit confusing, but the amount of knowledge there is out there for free mm-hmm. that you can, like, you any... 18, 19, 20 year old can quite easily, like you don't have to have, you know, business acumen or business knowledge necessarily. Like you said, you know, you can literally just source a product and then resell it for a a high, like people overcomplicate a a business generally, right? You know, any Mm -hmm. business, like product-based businesses, sourcing a product for, you know, X amount and selling it for Y amount, whether that be two, three, four times more. Um, And, you know, marketing it in between, right? Um, or sometimes, you know, in the case of fidget spinners where it kind of did its own marketing with, you know, the fact that they went so TikTok viral. and everything was massive back then. Wasn't yeah, it? exactly. Um, so, it, you know, you didn't need to put any money into into paid ads or anything like that um, because it was all, you know, just going viral on, on TikTok and whatnot. But um, yeah, people hugely overcomplicate the fact that it's so easy to create a business nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what a lot of people don't realize that it's, it's very easy to create a business from a passion that you have. Um, like if you've got a passion around whatever it may be, right, you can create a business out of it. Um, if you can, and it goes back to my initial point, if you can provide value to someone um, and have a monetary exchange of, you know, of money in between that, um, providing value and, you know, them seeing that value um, and you delivering a service, then, you've essentially, you know, you, you've got a business out of your passion. Um, and I think uh, going back to your point on university, it's just so ingrained into the education system and the curriculum that that is the route, you know, you need to follow. And it makes sense, right? Because, you know, the government essentially make, make the money, you know, at the top level from the whole process, right? You know, they make the money from, you know, the debt that people have to repay on, you know, university loans. They make the money from tax because people go into, you know, normal jobs. They don't move to places like Dubai, um, you know, to avoid tax and, and stuff like that. So it's it's all to benefit the government. And obviously, you know, they've got complete control of what, you know, kids are taught in school um, and the, the route that they're, they're taught to follow. So it's only the people really, and it's only in, in recent years, I think really since COVID, that, because people are becoming more adept to running online businesses um, and, you know, consuming content on YouTube, which, like I say, is, you know, for the most part, if you pick and choose what you watch, good enough to be able to give you the, the knowledge and the, the, the main kind of core fundamentals that you need to set up a business. Um, I think a lot more people, you know, in the next five, 10 years will escape the, you know, the, the conventional system, which is, you know, mm-hmm. you know I'll touch on one topic before we wrap up and one that I didn't really speak about in the last podcast, but I'm just curious to see your opinion on living in Dubai, Mm -hmm. doing business in Dubai, the kind of people that you meet here. And would you recommend it to somebody from the UK? (laughs) And I feel so, (laughs) you know, asking that question, I'm like, what am I asking? (laughs) But genuinely curious to take your, because I'm, one of the most biased people, right? When people ask me, and it's so annoying when people ask me like, should I move to Dubai? Yeah. I just feel like I don't even want to answer that. Like, just just think about it logically. You're in the UK, yeah. the situation's terrible, but I, um, I'm i just curious to see your view, right? Because I speak about this quite often. Yeah, I think it's, I, I would definitely, I would say yes. Um, but I feel like you've got to be willing to, to put yourself out like there's plenty of you know communities just like dyp right um there's plenty of communities that p- there's plenty of people who welcome you with open arms into you know whether it be a you know a, a business community whether it be more of like a corporate community whatever it may be um i think you've got to be willing to like put yourself out there and actually make the effort to you know find these things go to these things and stuff like that um it, i guess it all depends on you know 
your situation at the time, you know, whether you've got people you know out here, whether you, you know, you're coming out here sort of not knowing anyone, like myself, for example. Um, I think, yeah, you've got to be, if you if you are in that position where you don't know anyone, you've got to be willing to put yourself out there to, you know, join these communities and um, and essentially make friends, right? I mean, it's mm. obviously it's a no-brainer from, you know, all the other perspectives like tax and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, from like... It's a good a, view. I like, what, <coughs> I like what you've said. It's super important. And yeah. one of the things that really motivated me in the first instance to start DYP is because when I was in Manchester on that specific engagement on, on the British Steel that I mentioned, mm. I'd gone from a really social lifestyle when I was in university, always around my friends, to starting a new career and always working away. So I stayed mostly Sunday to Friday in hotels and really found it hard to find my group of people. Mm. And that can kind of make or break your experience when you move away from home, I think. Depending yeah. on what kind of person you are, I think 90% of people really do require kind of like-minded individuals inside their social groups. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's why Dubai is, is such a good place because it's literally like, logically, it's where everyone comes who like is, has some element of, you know, I don't want to call it success, but like has some element of, um, you know, or has a, a good job in the UK or whatever it may be, but they come to Dubai and there's, there's 100% going to be someone who's like-minded like you um, because, you know, it's a place where essentially people come to, you know, start, I guess, a new chapter in their life, but whilst also benefit benefiting from, you know, all the sort of benefits that Dubai offers, like I say, you know, from a tax perspective, from a weather perspective, from what you can do here and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like there's definitely going to be, as again, as long as you make the effort, um, I think if you don't make the effort, then it, it would be quite hard because Dubai is a big place, you know, there's a lot of people. So if you don't make the effort to actually, um, to actually network with those people or, you know, join communities like DYP, then, um, then I feel like that that's when it could be, you know, quite hard. You do benefit from the other benefits, but you know, if you sort of don't have any like-minded individuals and I would guess it could probably feel quite lonely, especially if you move out here kind of by yourself, um, without any, you know, prior friends um or you know family or whatever here um initially so yeah i would say definitely for anyone you know thinking about it or whatever definitely make the move um for the the conventional benefits but also be prepared to you know make an effort to to sort of you know find like-minded individuals but what maybe something that isn't discipline another skill that you think has really helped you become the person that you are and specifically around you know, your business journey? Um, I think for someone my age is probably maturity. Um, I think if you can, if you can, again, this is kind of, I guess this is more specific for younger people as opposed to, you know, maybe people in their mid, late twenties. But I think maturity, like I've, I feel like I've always been kind of like maybe three, two, three years, like above, the sort of level of maturity of someone my age. Mm. Um, and I think in business, that's really helped me to grow, you know, at, at sort of more of an exponential rate than otherwise, you know, maybe sort of the conventional. Um, because, you know, when you're talking to, to people and when you're, you know, negotiating deals and stuff like that, if, either, you know, there's, there's not that level of maturity there, it's just so much more impossible to do um, than, you know, if you think like sort of someone who is, the who is you know older than you has more experience than you you know when i'm talking to for example business owners you know for the agency and they're like you know 50 60 years old right mm -hmm. um the average sort of 20 year old um if they weren't kind of in a mature mindset or thinking in a mature mindset um or you know business mindset probably you know wouldn't have the same conversation or wouldn't negotiate yeah. the same deal as when you do have maturity so i think yeah, mature, if you can get maturity as much as possible. And I think by maturity, I mean, you know, not wanting to, to go out on a, like I have no intention on a Friday, Saturday night to go out to, you know, Marina and party. The PS7. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And go to clubs and whatnot and yeah. get into all of that, that shit because I guess, yeah, it's just, you know, maturity. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that every now and then. You have a you have a higher purpose calling you basically with, with what you're doing and it fulfills you in different ways, right? Yeah. So you just don't need that. Exactly. I don't need that kind of validation of, 
oh, you know, X amount that I've made this week, I can go and spend Y amount on it on, you know, a table at a club and mm. like you say, receive that bill and make the big gulp. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question. I'm really curious to see what your experience has been with DYP so far. Um, I know you came to the private dining where we met in Boca and then you also came to the yacht event. Um, only share positive things, obviously. But, said, just still rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just uh, just curious to see what your experience has been like yeah, so far. Yeah, it's been, to be honest with you, mate, it's been, it's been really, really good. Um, I think what you've, what you've built... I think for me, it's it's the the caliber of events that you put on, um, and you know the, the venues and stuff like that. Like the the planning and the execution, I think is like is higher than what I would expect at least for you know other sort of communities and stuff like that. I feel like you have a lot of care about like you know where kind of you know we we go as a community and stuff like that, and you know where events are held and and stuff like that so i think yeah it's been it's been a, a really good experience for that reason but also i think that attracts the right kind of people in you know when you know you're doing events like you're doing like you know a yacht party and stuff like that and also i guess going going on that point is that you know it's not just like you know sitting around a table and you know discussing business related stuff it's also mixing business with kind of like more casual fun events like the yacht party where you know you can network with people and stuff like that um so yeah no overall i think the number one community in dubai <laughs> awesome <laughs> i think that's a amazing place to finish so thank you very much tom it's been yeah, a been a pleasure you. mate thank you, thank you.